You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Well, it's great to be here with you. I realise we didn't uh, introduce Kathy, so Kathy's going to wave her hand here. There she is. Okay, easy to see. She's the only one in red. Okay, the lady in red. So do say hello to her afterwards. Let me read to you from uh, a T-shirt that I own, uh, but I I don't wear it. So uh, anyway, here we are. It's a Mambo shirt. Uh, yep, and Gary. Okay, so. Mambo Faith, Australian Jesus at the football. And uh, forgive me, it's a New South Wales uh, football ground. But uh, Gary, yeah, the next one. We've got to, That's it. Here it is. The Miracle of the Pies and Beer from the Book of Reg, done by Reg Mombasa. And it came to pass that Australian Jesus addressed a multitude of 40,000 people at the SCG on his spoken word tour of New South Wales. The day was long and hot. So he said to his assistants, they are tired and hungry, give ye them refreshments. And they said unto him, we have but five pies and two cans of warm beer. So Australian Jesus cast his eyes to heaven and began to hand out the pies and the beer until all did eat and were filled. And the beer was cold, it was good. (laughs) Now, I know he's making fun of us, you know, if you're a Christian he's making fun of us, we're a slow moving target. But I tell you that one of the great ironies, the vast majority of Aussies would say, no, no, they're not religious, but I reckon they'd listen to Australian Jesus. Why? Not just because he can make pies and beer, but because he understands what people need and he, he cares for people and he's able to deliver. And they'd listen. Uh, kind of One of the great ironies is the first story that Cedric just read for us in John chapter 2 about Jesus creating, turning water into wine the real Jesus is much closer to Australian Jesus than the average Aussie might think. So that's, that's Jesus, if you like, happy Jesus, in a good mood, doing great things, Jesus. But the second story, if you're listening, Jesus makes a whip and clears the temple, chases people out. That's angry Jesus. That's fire and brimstone Jesus. So what's Jesus really like? My my brother and I would... T- are we recording this? No, no, we are. Good. It's just good to know who you're talking to. That's good. Okay, thank you. Sorry. My brother and I were taken to, as, a, as little boys or as kids to a very strict um, church in the little country town that I grew up in. And uh, I said to him, mate, what do you remember about church as a kid? And, and my brother's not a follower of Jesus. What do you remember? And he said, oh, getting shouted at. And that's my memory too. The minister always seemed angry. Bang the pulpit, shout at us, something. And is that Jesus? Um, Or is Jesus like two-faced and moody? Sometimes happy Jesus, sometimes angry Jesus. Did the apostles, you know, the, the disciples when they turned up, they had to kind of throw their hat in the room to see what the reaction would be. You know, Jesus calls us to follow him. If you're already a Christian, that's what it means, to follow him as Lord. And if you're not a Christian, he calls you to do that. So it's very important to know him and understand him 
And these two stories show us very clearly who Jesus is. And why has John, if you've, if you've got your Bible or phone there, why has John put those two stories together? Because the, the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, didn't just throw different stories together. They're beautifully crafted stories to show us who Jesus is. And John's got so much material. Uh, at the end of John's Gospel, he says, if I wrote down everything, the world itself couldn't hold the books. So he's got a huge number of different stories, the things that happened. Why put those two together? In fact, he's done it deliberately. It may be that he's even changed the timing of Jesus clearing the temple. He may have taken it from the week before Jesus died and put it at the beginning of the gospel. It doesn't matter. He can change the chronology. He's trying to tell us who Jesus is. So why put the two of them together when they seem so different? Well, he's put them together very deliberately. So let's have a look and see what we can learn. All right, now Gary, I'm just going to read through um, uh, the, the, the two stories and then we'll pull a few threads together. I'm using the New International Translation. Uh, you guys, you read the, the Christian Standard Bible. There's very little difference between the two modern translations. They're both good translations. Here we go, the story of the wedding. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. This is at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He hasn't really become famous yet. He's got a few disciples. Comes to the wedding with his mum. In those days, a wedding feast would last a week. Now, I was thinking about that. Why? I worked it out. If you've walked 100 kilometres to get to a wedding and they give you a salad sandwich and a cup of tea and say, thanks for coming, not happy. Okay, you, you take your week to get there, turn on the hospitality for a week. Our daughter who lives in Elwood uh, got married, uh, was at a winery uh, and about two or three months before the whole COVID thing started and it was great fun. A heap of people there and great food and it was a winery, so there was wine to drink, etc. But just imagine if people had travelled from kind of all over the country to be there, imagine if halfway through someone had messed up the catering and there's the food and the wine has stopped. And someone gets a job to go out and say, ah, folks, we're drinking water the rest of the time. No one wants to do that. And that's why Jesus' mum, when someone whispers in her ear, she doesn't announce it. See what she does, verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Um, he, she just comes straight to him because she knows he's the go-to guy. He'll, he'll do something, he'll fix it. Hard to imagine, really, your mum coming to you and asking you to just kind of do something unless you've ever had a mum, anyway. Um, all right, verse 4. Jesus' answer might seem a little bit strange. Woman, why do you involve me? Now, what he said, it's not rude. It's just a different way that they would talk. Sometimes, you know, might even say, man, why are you doing this? He's just kind of saying, woman, why are you involving me? I think it means like, this wasn't the plan, mum. I just came to the wedding. It's not kind of part of the strategic plan, like, you know. Um, and then he says, my hour has not yet come. I'll come back to that, what he means by his hour. It's a loaded word in John's Gospel. Anyway, what I like is, she knows he'll fix it. She just says to the servants in verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now, as I look around for most of you guys, what's a gallon? Um, 20 to 30 gallons is about 100 litres. 
So you've got six big jars that would have held, they're empty, would have held 100 litres each. And what John says is, it's literally um, used for, for ceremonial washing. What he says literally in the original language is, according to the purifying of the Jews. Now what, what does he mean? Over the previous centuries, it wasn't all written in the Old Testament, but over the previous centuries, the elders of the Jewish people had worked out and accumulated a whole series of washings. They washed cups and plates and pitchers. They washed their hands. They washed all sorts of things, not to get rid of germs, but because they thought that these religious rituals would make them acceptable to God. That's what they did. They, they washed. And people still do religious rituals today, uh, you know, a confirmation or a first communion or something with holy water or, or whatever. Well, what does Jesus do with these empty jars? Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine he did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Now stop and think, I've got the calculator out. Jesus has just made the equivalent of 800 bottles of the best wine. 800 bottles. And do you find that hard to believe? I don't mean is it hard to believe that Jesus could turn water into wine. That, that's a question about whether you believe in God or not. I mean that if God turned up at your party, he'd want you to enjoy yourself. Is that hard to believe? You know, they didn't actually drink all that wine. He made so much because when Kathy went to Cana in Galilee about, when was it? Three years ago, sorry, wasn't it? About three years ago, um, she went to Cana in Galilee, and here we go, the first miracle, Cana wedding wine, um, 12% volume dry wine. There it is. So, so they bottled some of it. Actually, the good news is Jesus did most of his miracles near souvenir shops. It was very convenient. All right, anyway, so Kathy won't... We, we're not opening this, are we? We're just, it's okay. All right, well, it's 2,000 years old already. So Anyway, there we go. What, can you think about that? Would you have wanted to invite Jesus, and I believe Jesus is God, become one of us, would you have wanted to invite him to your party? Would you, want, would you think he would want you to enjoy yourself? Because very often, the picture that's given by some churches, some Christian people, looks more like this. Uh, okay, whoa, enjoy yourself, right? No, um, it's like the fun police. And... and that's not Jesus, is it? So often it looks like, you know, Christians can, churches can make it like following Jesus is like sucking on a lemon. That is not the picture you get here. What I'm trying to say is this. Um, oh no, wait, let me go back. Uh, Jesus makes 800 bottles of wine and he makes it so people can enjoy themselves. Let me say also, and I, I need to say this, I could give you equally the talk on the, on the, absolute damage that alcohol does in our society absolutely just kills people tears tears families apart etc etc why it's because people won't listen to what god says about how to use that good gift and god says don't don't cross the self-control line 
We call it getting drunk. Don't cross the self-control line because you'll mess up your own life and other people's. Me personally, I like it too much, so I stopped. I haven't had a drink for 14 years. Okay, um, that's just that's just me. But it's a good gift of God. Jesus wants people to enjoy themselves. Okay, and what I'm trying to say is Jesus is not an ascetic. What's what's an ascetic? You might think, hey, oh, what's an ascetic? Ah, oh, glad you asked. Okay, here's an ascetic. Simon the Stylite, or Simon Stylites, is a saint uh, from the 5th century. I'll read you about him. Um, He died in 459. He was a Syrian ascetic saint who achieved notability for living 37 years on a small platform on top of a pillar near Aleppo in Syria. So on a platform like that, he lived up there for 37 years. Now, I'm not sure that that should make him a saint. I reckon the real saint is the person who emptied that bucket every day on the rope. But anyway, we don't know who that was, who he or she, they were the saint. I'll read you the, um, the definition of asceticism. Here it is. Asceticism may be defined as the voluntary abstention for philosophical or religious reasons from physical goods that are central to the well-being of humankind. The goods are primarily those closely associated with the satisfaction of bodily needs, namely nice food, nice things to drink, um, comfortable clothes, all that sort of thing. Most scholars agree that ascetic abstention aims at rendering the practitioner morally acceptable before the divine. In other words, you do without nice food or nice things to drink or nice clothes or you flog yourself and doing that makes you acceptable to God. And that is not Jesus and it's not what he taught. There were times when Jesus fasted so to learn humility and to pray, but Jesus was criticised for enjoying food and drink and a party. Right? He came that we might enjoy life. Now, one other thing, did you notice, when Jesus does the miracle, he cares for the bride and groom so much that he does it under the radar and the bride and groom get the credit for the 800 bottles of excellent wine. He cares for people. Now, what does it mean? Well, verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. In John's Gospel, John, what we might call miracles, John calls signs. Now, what does a a sign do? Well, there's an exit sign over there, okay, the green thing. A sign is something that points to something else that's bigger and more important than itself. That sign's telling you how to get out of the building, if there's a fire or whatever. Okay, so in John's Gospel, Jesus does these things that John calls signs and they point to something about Jesus. I'll give you an example, you'll get it. Jesus feeds a crowd of 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and then he says, I am the bread of life. Or Jesus opens the eyes of a man born blind and then he says, I am the light of the world. Or Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead after three day, after four days and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now what's this a sign of? I think it's a sign, what Jesus does is a sign that looks back to the Old Testament promises and it looks forward to heaven. Let me show you part of the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 25, Isaiah is talking about the new creation that God will make one day heaven if you like, the new creation that won't be messed up the way we've messed it up and God through Isaiah says this, on this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples 
a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. It's interesting, when the Bible talks about heaven, it talks about it in really kind of earthy, physical ways, really. Uh, a new, renewed creation, the way this world was meant to be. And you know, sometimes you get glimpses of that and I think almost always it involves people you love and food. People you love and food. If you're from an Asian culture, you get that. Um, I turned 60 a couple of years ago. I didn't want a big party. What did we arrange? We had four kids and, and three of them are married. One, our son's got a girlfriend, got them all together, a couple of grandkids around a big table and Kathy cooked up a storm. We had a mountain of food and I just sat back and watched the people that I love bounce off one another and enjoy a great meal together. That's a little glimpse of heaven. Jesus says in John chapter 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Do you believe that? He's come that we have life now, not in the stupid, shallow, prosperity gospel way, you know, you're going to be rich and famous and wrinkle-free or whatever. No, you may have hard things in your life, but he promises that it'll be your best life and that he'll make you like Jesus. And everything that happens will work together for your good and, and change your character to make you like him. Best life now and eternal life in the new creation. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? Because it's life-changing if you do. And then John finishes the story by saying in verse 11, the first of his signs through which he reveals his glory and the his disciples believed in him. They believed him. And when it comes to seeing his glory, it's not so much that he could change the water into wine. It's, it, that, that's not it so much as we saw how much he loved and cared for people. Because Jesus' glory in John's Gospel is that he gives his life in so many ways and ultimately on the cross to love people for what they needed. Okay, that's the first story. Right? Hold that. Let's have a look at the second story. Have you, ever, have you ever walked into a cathedral? I wonder if you have. When you walk into a cathedral, I've been um, to some here in Australia and a couple overseas, you walk in and they're huge vaulted, ceilings and they're quiet and the light is kind of filtered and there's a kind of a spooky feel um, or actually the proper word is ethereal I looked it up ethereal means extremely delicate and light in a way that seems not to be of this world and so in a cathedral you're meant to kind of feel like whoa God is really God is really here wow okay now there was a building where God had promised to meet with people. So about 900 BC, God spoke um, through King Solomon, who was the son of King David in Israel. King Solomon was told how to build the temple. And he built this magnificent temple. That's the one, Gary. Um, that's just an artist's impression because it doesn't stand anymore. It doesn't exist. Covered in gold and cedar and all, all sorts of beautiful things. And it was a place where God had promised to meet with his people. Now that's about 900 BC, unfortunately over the coming centuries it became corrupt and God used the Babylonians to destroy it in about 600 BC. Now really long story, really short, about 15 BC, that's 15 BC, Herod the Great, and he's the one that tried to kill Jesus as a baby, okay, Herod the Great decided that he would rebuild 
the temple in Jerusalem. And it was massive. Now, here's an artist's impression. Uh, Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, it, it was only a few kilometres apart uh, across. So we live near Centennial Park in Sydney and, and old, ancient Jerusalem would have fitted into Centennial Park. Right? Park in Melbourne? Anyway, a few, yeah, okay, a few kilometres across. So it's not huge, but the, the temple just dominated the whole city. And what it was, was a whole series of, of courts, like um, walls that got smaller and smaller. There was the court of the Gentiles. I think we've got it. Yeah, a court of the Gentiles was the size of maybe a dozen football fields. It was huge. Um, and then you had uh, the court of the women, then the court of the men, and then the court of the priests. And then right in the centre was what was called the holy place or the holy of holies, which was a perfect cube. And it was blocked off with a huge curtain. And that was where the very presence of God had promised to be. And only the high priest, only one day a year on the Day of Atonement, after a sacrifice, was able to go into into the presence of God. As I read the books, the, the people were so scared of going in there, they tied a rope to the, the leg of the high priest in case he died while he was in there and they could pull him out. That They were very scared about walking into the presence of God. You could only come into the presence of God if there had been sacrifice to pay the price of sin. Okay, let's read the story. Verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There, he stayed, there they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Okay, here's where he went. Now, that's Google Maps. Um, Jesus didn't drive. It wasn't 195 kilometres. He walked uh, the grey line, 186 kilometres. A couple of things to say. One, you notice this really happened. You can Google it on Google Maps or Kathy's been there. It's not Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings. This stuff happened. Next thing, it says Jesus went up to Jerusalem, but he's going south. Uh, it's because, well, Jerusalem's up on a mountain anyway, but often people will talk about going up to the capital. So Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. What does he find when he gets to the temple? Verse 14. In the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and other others sitting at tables exchanging money. Herod's court, the court of the Gentiles, was the place where the, the non-Jewish people were supposed to be able to come and pray to the true God, the God of Israel. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us there were hundreds of thousands of people came from all over the Roman Empire at Passover time. If you're travelling for a couple of weeks, you can't bring a bull or a, or a goat or a sheep with you for sacrifice, so you had to buy an animal when you got there but there's a great business opportunity, so they'd set up selling the animals in the court of the Gentiles where these people were supposed to be able to pray. And then changing money, uh, the exchanging of money, you were only allowed to pay the temple tax in what was called Tyrian shekels. That's coins made in the city of Tyre. I think it was because it had a very high silver content. So you bring your ordinary money in, you change it for these Tyrian coins and you pay the temple tax in that and they'd set up the money changes in the court of the Gentiles. Now, it's worth thinking about. Jesus, as we know about Jesus, he walked through a world of pain, um, military occupation, slavery, poverty, uh, all sorts of things. He was compassionate. 
and yet this is the only time he takes physical action on something. And we're told, verse 15, so he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Like, it's a huge place. You imagine you've got livestock running everywhere, chaos, you know, bulls or oxen running here and there and sheep. And then he flips over the money changers. You've got valuable coins rolling everywhere, chaos. And he pushes them out of the temple. He's so angry. Verse 16, to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Um, Now that quote is from Psalm 69, um, written by King David about his concern and love for God's house. And Jesus talks about my father's house and their... Sorry. Um, yeah, 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 it is mine. It, it's done, yeah, yeah, about 120,000 Ks. Yep. What, six grand? No, six grand, you're dreaming. I was after eight or near seven and a half. Yeah, yeah okay, well, look, I'll, I'll be home tomorrow probably about lunch. Okay, yep, all right, well, yep. Sorry. Now, um, just selling my car on Gumtree, sorry. Um, You think I'd do that? How would you feel if I really did that? Interrupted a sermon to um, sell my car on Gumtree. Kathy just rang me, we we lined it up. (laughs) You you couldn't imagine that a minister is going to stop in the middle of a sermon, right? to be selling something on Gumtree. It's not wrong to sell the car on Gumtree, right? Well, if it's done 120000 it might be a bit chunky, but um, <laughs> it's, it's not wrong to sell the car, but interrupting a sermon when you're supposed to be teaching the Word of God and speaking to people shows what? It shows no respect for you and it shows no respect for God. And that is why Jesus is angry, because they have turned his Father's house into a marketplace. You want to sell your animals? Great, do it outside the temple. You want to change the coins? Great, do it outside the temple. And he is furious. Why? Because he's absolutely concerned for the glory of God. And that is what makes him so angry. And you know what? I should be more concerned for the glory of God as well. More concerned for people to know him and to honour him. And it, it doesn't grieve me like it should that we live in a country that just ignores him. But there's a second part to the story too. As he drives them all out, they're standing outside and they say to him in verse 18, the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Like they're saying, who do you think you are to do this? Because because they've been reading their Old Testament and they knew that God had promised one day God would send his great king and when the king came, the Messiah or or the, the Lord, when the king came, the first thing you'd do was to go to the temple and put the cleaners through it. Let me show you. Um, second last chapter of the Old Testament, about four centuries before Jesus. God says this, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. 
In other words, he'll put the cleanness through the way that people worship God. And so they say to him, show us a sign. Now usually Jesus says no to people who demand signs because that, that's just straight out, you know, hard-hearted unbelief. But this time he says, okay. He says, verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now his enemies remember this and this act they use this slightly twisted but they use it at his trial uh, to, um, to try to incriminate him. But they misunderstand. See verse 20, they say to him, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Now what does he mean? The whole, Jesus says destroy this temple. He's not pointing at the big stone building, he's pointing at himself. Because Jesus truly is the temple where people meet with God. And the big stone buildings, etc., and all of the, all that grandeur, they were only ever visual aids to teach you that you need a special place to meet with God. And no one can come into God's presence without sacrifice. So Jesus is really saying, what, you think I'm acting like I own the temple? I am the temple. And so Jesus is the one where you meet with God. He is the one also that will pay the price of sin that will make the sacrifice. And so destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. You keep reading, that's the rest of John's Gospel. They do destroy the temple and he raises it again in three days. And John says they remember. So verse 22, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. All right. Now, let's just pull a few threads together. Okay. What's some of the things and how it might be relevant for us today? The first one's this. There's no more special buildings. For people who follow Jesus, no more special religious buildings. I don't know if you notice how often... Uh, I notice even some driving around here the last couple of days. Christian people have built church buildings trying to make them look like the temple. Right? They have God's end of the building and they call it a sanctuary, the holy place. They have huge high ceilings or uh, it's all ornate, etc. And uh, they've missed the point. If you do that, you haven't actually understood the gospel. So does it matter? Well, um, if, you have, if you're treating buildings like the temple where, where you're supposed to meet with God in this building or a special priesthood that's closer to God than the other people who believe in Jesus or you're performing religious rituals, does it matter? Yeah, it matters. I'll tell you why. Because you've actually ignored what Jesus has done. No more of that. All that stuff just pointed to what Jesus would, done, would do. Now Jesus has done it. You don't need it anymore. You get to know God, you meet with God through Jesus. He offered the one sacrifice, no more altars, no more priesthood, no more buildings, you know God through Jesus. And if you keep reading in John's Gospel, uh, John chapter 3, God's spirit means that you're born again and chapter 4, you, you worship God in spirit and in truth, not in any particular place. Okay, that's one. Also, remember... These two stories seem so different? No, they're not. They're telling us the same thing. Let me show you. They're telling us religious ritual is empty. Did you notice in the, in the story, the wine story, the ritual washing jars are empty. And Jesus takes the water of religious ritual and turns it, in the wine, turns it into the wine of the gospel. Or even in the temple, if you're just kind of going through the motions, 
Or as my son would say, if you're just phoning it in, if that's all you're doing, it's empty. Uh-huh. You need to worship God with your heart. All right. Or another one, how is it possible to come to God with guilt on your hands? And we all have guilty conscience. Uh-huh. Answer, the death of Jesus is in both stories. So when Jesus says to his mother, um, my hour has not yet come, he mean, his hour is actually when he'll die. So even as he does this kindness for people, Jesus' death is on the horizon. And then in the, in the story about the temple, he'll say, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up. And what do these stories tell us about Jesus? Well, I've got a question for you. Whose son is Jesus in each of these stories? Whose son is he? Well, in the first story, he's Mary's son, isn't he? He says, he talks, they say, Jesus' mother came to him. He's Mary's son. He's, he's fully human. In the second story, he talks about my father's house as the temple. He's the son of God. And so the son of Mary and the son of God, he, he is the one who can tell us about God and how to live as a human being. Now, what's he like? Well, the story about the wine tells us this, that Jesus wants people to enjoy their lives, to enjoy the ordinary things in life, like you know, a glass of wine and, and, and a wedding and a party and enjoy being married and the ordinariness of life. And so that picture, um, where we go, yeah, the sucking on a lemon picture, that is not Jesus. That is not what Jesus wants for us. He, he wants us to enjoy life. Now, he will tell his people to live sacrificially, to, to put yourself out, to maybe um, not choose all of the fancy things that you could have, to change the way you spend your time or your money. Why? Because you want to love people and people need to hear about Jesus. But it's not asceticism. It's not punishing yourself so God will like you. It's putting yourself out for others. But he wants us to enjoy life. And the second story about the temple, he's teaching us you've got to relate to God who gives us those good things with respect, if you like, or with awe, as the Bible says, not just ritual. Now, the New Testament picks up those two themes. The New Testament will say, God wants you to enjoy the good things of life. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when he writes to Timothy, he says, people who tell you you can't eat certain foods or forbid people to marry or um, that sort of thing, that's actually from the devil. So 1 Timothy 4.4 says, everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. And as well as that, the New Testament will say you must take God seriously. Hebrews chapter 12, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably. How? With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now my guess is the idea of special holy buildings and cathedrals isn't a great temptation here. Okay, all right. You need to understand forgiveness. But I'll tell you what might be. Kathy and I belong to a church um, that we love in Surrey Hills in Sydney called Vine Church. And in some ways it looks a lot like this church. Uh, young, high achievers, the world at their feet, uh, people with lots of options, etc. Citizens of the world, all of that stuff. And do you know what keeps so many of those talented young ones on the edge of following Jesus, just not quite sure if they should or kind of half put in each world. Or I'll tell you what it is. It's FOMO, the fear of missing out. And the question, if, 
if you, right, you're young, or most of you are young and beautiful, etc., you know, right? If I follow Jesus, if I truly led into it and gave him my life, and he'll tell me to enjoy life, but he'll tell me to live sacrificially as well for others. If I do that, will I miss out? That's the question. And I want to tell you, the one who made 800 bottles of wine at the wedding and did it so that the bride and groom got the credit, the one who even then knew about his hour that he would die for his people, do you think he did all of that so he can have second best? No one who's truly followed Jesus will be asking for a refund. And, and why is that so important? We need to believe that and trust him. Uh, believe that's right, if we're going to trust him in how we live. And that's how those two stories end, isn't it? Um, Gary, we've got the, the summary of those two. Okay. Ah, yeah, that's it. Okay, thank you. Well done. The wine story, see where it finishes? And his disciples believed in him and the temple story. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So when you understand that he's good and wise and can care for us and wants what's best for us, you can trust him. Do you pray with me? Please God, help us to know Jesus better and to understand that he came to give us life to the full. We ask please that we may live our lives before you with reverence and awe and joy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.